KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power, welcoming the renowned Jack Quartet to San Diego for an evening of music titled Modern Medieval with works by Caroline Shaw, Morton Feldman, and more. Monday, May 6th at The Loft at UC San Diego, artpower.ucsd.edu. San Diego's economy takes a $12 billion hit from COVID. The hardest hit San Diegans are those who are earning the least amount of money in the region. I'm Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. New controversies heat up the neck-and-neck race in San Diego's 50th Congressional District. I look forward to having you as a constituent when I return. You know, my uh, my two years... I can't say the same because you don't live in the district, but go ahead. I, I do live in the district. Could San Diego's sewage pose a COVID-19 health risk? And it's an outdoor production for San Diego Opera's La Boheme. That's ahead on Midday Edition. First, the news. KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The San Diego Association of Governments, or SANDAG, has tallied up the economic losses we've sustained in the first six months of the COVID pandemic, and the results are significant. The analysis finds that the San Diego region will be hit with an overall loss of more than $12 billion this year, a figure that not only wipes out an expected 2% increase in the gross regional product, but erases the region's economic gains for the past two years. Although the loss of business activity affects all of San Diego, the Sandag analysis finds certain industries and workers have been hit the hardest. Joining me is Ray Major, Chief Economist at Sandag. And Ray, welcome to the program. Thank you, Maureen. Thank you for having me. What kinds of business activity did Sandag count to create this economic picture? Well, we took a look at all of the different sectors of the economy here in San Diego. And what we found is that there were some that were hit much harder than others uh, with the COVID impact. And so we were looking at um, industries like the tourism industry and retail and education. Just those three industries account for about 80% of the job loss in the region uh, during this COVID uh, lockdown. And how many jobs have been lost here during the first six months of the pandemic? So we estimate that there's probably around 176,000 jobs that are lost or can be directly tied to losses due to COVID. And about 140,000 of those are in the three industries that I mentioned previously. Now, you found that the hardest hit San Diegans were those making the lowest incomes to begin with. Tell us about that. Well, we, we had some early information that that was going to be a problem, but now we started to look deeper into the data. And what we saw is that there has been a recovery in a lot of industries. So Uh, In the industries that are primarily white collar, when you take a look at things like the innovation sector, you look at uh, finance, insurance, and real estate, pretty much those jobs have come back and people are working remotely. So we see less than a percent difference uh, in terms of employment now and at the beginning of the pandemic. But when you look at workers who earned less than $27,000 per year, so that's pretty much minimum wage employment, we see that the employment levels are still down by 23%. 
So that really points out to us that the hardest hit San Diegans are those who are earning the least amount of money in the region. Have we seen any improvements in any of those sectors? I've been hearing, for example, that more people are starting to take road trips. Could tourism be coming back? We do see people taking road trips and we do see tourism coming back a little bit in terms of people taking local vacations. So you would see people coming down from Orange County or LA and staying in San Diego. But our tourism industry is such a large part of our overall uh, economy that it really has taken a hit because it relies so heavily on business tourism. And the conventions that used to come to San Diego and would fill the hotels downtown and the convention center and those people would go out to eat dinner in the gas lamp district and they would go and, and, and spend money in the San Diego economy, that has pretty much dried up this year. And so that industry is still hit extremely hard. Although local tourism is coming back, people are starting to travel a little bit. And your analysis also suggests that some of the most affected industries like tourism, like retail, might not come back to what we consider normal. Why not? Well, when you take a look at something like like retail, there's been hyper adoption of internet shopping, for instance. So internet shopping, we were looking at double digit growth each year for, for the last couple of years. But all of a sudden, everybody started ordering things online and you you see internet activity or shopping activity up by 200%. And when you see numbers like that, what happens is that you have consumer behavior changing. And so people are now much more comfortable buying things online and having them delivered to their door. There's a a certain level of convenience there and safety. Quite frankly, you don't have to go out if, if you are concerned about COVID to purchase these things. And so Brick and mortar stores were already suffering because of internet sales, but now we take a look at it and boy, they're going to have a real hard time given the adoption of of internet sales in the last couple of months. In addition to that, you asked about the tourism industry and you know, for the, the tourism industry, people have adopted this Zoom technology and other ways of communicating than in person. And many of these business conferences that were held in person can now really be held online. And that's a phenomenon that did not occur before March. And now all of a sudden you can hold these conferences online. And then you have to start thinking, will a business really send its people across the nation, pay for the airfare, pay for the hotel, the price of entrance into the convention to have their their, their people go live when they can actually do it over uh, some kind of Zoom technology or computer technology. And I think we're going to see a change in business travel. I don't think that businesses are going to want to spend the money to send people plus until it's 100% safe to travel. Many businesses are not going to want to put their employees in a risky situation where they would send them. Now, negotiations are still going back and forth in Washington over a new stimulus package. Could a new influx of cash from the government help San Diego to shore up some of these economic losses? Absolutely, cash infusion would help the local economy. Our estimates of the $12.4 billion that we lost in the region is actually better than it could have been had the government not uh, infused two to $3 trillion into the uh, national economy early on in the pandemic. So the, the money that is infused into the economy is spent on consumer good purchases, for instance, some people pay their mortgages with it, and it really does keep the economy going. So these stimulus bills are necessary as long as we are in a situation 
where businesses cannot return to full operations because of state regulations. I've been speaking with Ray Major, Chief Economist at Sandag. And Ray, thank you very much. You're welcome. Thank you very much. Recent polls show the race for the 50th Congressional District in San Diego's East County is neck and neck. Former Congressman Darrell Issa is running against former U.S. Hispanic Chamber of Commerce official and East County native Amar Campanajar. KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman takes a look at both candidates. I'm trying to teach you the best I can. (laughs) And I'm trying uh, to keep you honest, but that's fine. Well, and I'm trying to keep you honest. The race for the 50th Congressional District is heating up. I look forward to having you as a constituent when I return. You know, my uh, my two years... I can't say the same because you don't live in the district, but go ahead. I I do live in the district. Republican Daryl Issa and Democrat Amar Campanajar have had some tense exchanges during recent forums. He has great ideas, but I can bring those ideas to Don't you want to answer the actual question? I already answered the question. Oh, good. That's why you're responding to it. After serving in Congress for 18 years, most recently in the 49th Congressional District, ISA is eyeing a return to Capitol Hill. He stepped down in 2018 after regular protests outside his office in Vista. He was then nominated for a position inside the Trump administration. I make no bones about it. As a conservative, the other district that I represented became very difficult, but I stood my ground. My two-year sabbatical uh, has certainly given me an opportunity to rest. So I, I'm, uh, I've never been more excited about the job. The candidates are vying for a traditionally conservative seat once held by Duncan Hunter. The district currently has no representation. Hunter resigned after pleading guilty to misusing campaign funds. The district covers much of East County and goes into Temecula. 40% of voters in the 50th are registered Republicans, while 30% are Democrats. Still, former Obama White House aide Campanajar was able to grab nearly half of the vote in 2018 and is now running for a second time. Voters need to know that I am a consensus builder. You know, I've managed to piss off both sides of the party, both parties. So I'm doing something right. On the things we agree on, I want to go far, creating jobs, apprenticeship programs. Campanajar sat down with KPBS to talk about the issues while ISIS campaign did not make the former congressman available for an interview. ISA did address many issues in public forums and debates. One of them was how to help businesses affected by the pandemic. Both candidates agreed that the state should not be deciding who gets to stay open and who has to shut down. But ISA does not want to see any more forgivable loan programs, while Campanajar does. The idea that we're going to throw another trillion, two trillion, three trillion of borrowed money Uh, in order to keep people at home, I think that is foolhardy. It is inconsistent with what what I'm hearing. Small businesses are telling me they just want to reopen. What I'd like to do when I'm in Congress is make sure that these loans for small businesses are going to those who are employing people and need it the most. California Governor Gavin Newsom recently issued a bold executive order to tackle climate change. All new cars sold in the state will have to be zero emissions by 2035. But Campanajar says the state has energy issues and points to recent rolling blackouts. We need to make sure that our energy policies meet the demands. Right now, we don't have the supply, especially in those peak hours when the sun is setting, people are going home. We've done a good job with solar and wind and and biofuels to have energy development, but we're not good with the storage yet. ISA agrees storage is a problem and wants to see investments in energy alternatives like nuclear and pump storage. We need to have be more innovative. We need to have large storage capability uh, or we need to keep other systems on board. We're prematurely shutting down nuclear, which is, of course, zero emissions. The candidates have sparred over health care and how to lower costs for Americans. We have to reduce the cost of health care, not try to subsidize insurance. 
the basic goal is competition, tort reform, FDA reform. These are the three things that will work. I don't believe in single payer, just the opposite. Campanajar did support Medicare for all while running in 2018, but now he says it's not affordable and he doesn't support single payer health care. Have your private insurance if you want it. Half of Americans have it, but then create competition to lower costs and increase the quality of care. Introduce a national Kaiser nonprofit plan. Give people the opportunity to buy into Medicare a little bit earlier. Through the end of June, ISA, formerly one of the wealthiest members of Congress, has raised $8.2 million, of which nearly $6 million was donated or loaned by ISA himself. During the same time, Campanajar has raised just over $3 million. Joining me is KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, welcome. Hey, Maureen. Now, in recent days, New controversies have emerged in the 50th District campaign. Both candidates have had Facebook Live discussions with Justin Haskins, the leader of the Defend East County group. First of all, can you remind us what this group is and the kinds of actions they've been involved in? Right, Maureen. So it was a group that was formed after May protests in La Mesa. Those are some racial injustice protests. We saw some some looting. Uh, we saw some buildings that were burned down. I mean, this group was formed, they say, sort of to protect their community uh, from, from these looters, from the, some of these rioters. But some of the group have espoused some right-wing conspiracy theories, made some racist statements, and they've also called for violence against some of these protesters. Now, I will say that that's not everyone in the group. And the, and the leader, Justin, says, look, we have 22,000 people in here. Some people are angry, and they're going to post some things that they shouldn't. But they say that the group is not about violence, and he says that he disavows white supremacy. Now, Republican Darrell Issa seemed to give the group his wholehearted support in his discussion with Haskins. His comments supported militia groups and their right to defend their communities. Tell us about that. Yeah, so Issa was talking about the anti-fascist movement known as Antifa, talking about the Black Lives Matter movement, um, saying that, look, these groups sort of take away people's rights and they empower uh, sort of the, some of these bad actors uh, that, that we see, some of these cr- some of these criminal elements. Um, when he's talking about some of the looting that we see. And sort of he's saying, look, when, when this is happening, um, when law and order breaks down, there needs to be people there to sort of defend the communities. And he expressed support for their sort of vigilantism, you know. He said that they were a very important part as law and order was breaking down. And yeah, he later said, Said, look, a militia is a personal right, and uh, it's it's their right to um, when their community is you know under some sort of duress to sort of take charge. Uh, if if their government fails them, or it's they're able to take arms. Now, perhaps more surprising is the whiskey and cigar Facebook Live meeting between Haskins and Democrat Amar Kampanajar. What are some of the comments that came out of that meeting? Yeah, so there was a lot of comments in that meeting that some would describe as really pandering a lot and sort of moving away from some of the base that that Amar's built. Just first of all, the confirmation process for uh, Supreme Justice uh, Brett Kavanaugh um, saying that, look, we need to know, can you do the job? That's what matters the most. Uh, he sort of said that he wouldn't have gotten the way of his confirmation um, had he been a senator. I'm also talking about had he been a senator, um, he supports the current justice, uh, Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation, you know, sort of saying, look, she's qualified as a justice. And look, we have a Republican Senate and the Republican Senate is going to confirm her. Um, and, th- and those are some things that are really angering a lot of people. Now, he also talked about who he's going to vote for president. He did vote for Biden in the primary. But during this interview with Justin, he said, look, my vote is open. And he said, you guys think I'm going to vote for Biden necessarily, but I, I want to see how they perform in-, in these debates that are coming up. Now, I do want to say, Maureen, that after we pressed him on some of these questions, uh, he did walk back a lot of this, especially who he was voting for president, um, saying o- over the weekend, there was a 99% chance that he was voting for Biden. And then we saw 
saw it just a couple days ago, um, him posting on social media saying, I have voted for Biden. Uh, so he's walking back some of these uh, comments that he's making. Um, he also did tell Justin that uh, he wanted to uh, investigate Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama uh, for their potential role um, in investigating President Trump. Um, and that's something that Justin uh, really, really pressed him on. He said he'd be open to um, investigating everybody, <laughs> um, not not just them, but also President Trump. So Kambanadar is apologizing for his conversation. Why is he doing that? What kind of flack has he gotten? Yeah, so Kambanadar has got a lot of flack from a lot, a lot of activists in the community. A lot of these groups who have been out there protesting were sort of uh, Defendies County might be counter protesters, and they say that they have a lot of experiences uh, where they've, um, you know, either uh, physically harmed them or they've said statements to them that they believe are, are, are just racist. And Amar Kambanadar saying, um, "Hey, look, I did not know this before I sat down with the group. Um, I knew that they um, had, you know, raised some suspicion or something, but." He he, he said that he didn't know that they had, you know, threatened people's lives. Um, and we're seeing him post, you know, a lot of apology videos. I know he's meeting with groups in the community, trying to just say that he was going there to try to reach across the aisle. But he does point out that some of these comments he made, maybe he did go a little bit too far. Now, another controversy involves Kampanajar's accusations against Daryl Issa. Now, Daryl Issa has an estimated fortune of several hundred million dollars. And Kampanajar says that Issa took a PPP loan of $100,000 or more for his business. Those loans were meant to shore up small businesses during the pandemic. So does ISA say he took the loan? This whole issue had been talked about during forums between the two candidates, but it really came to a head when Campanajar put out a TV ad, um, basically saying that a company owned by ISA got a PPP loan, um, and that ISA also at one point donated $150,000 to his campaign, which was the amount of the PPP loan. Um, and basically that ad said, look, you know, ISA shut out businesses from critical money, um, and he funded his campaign with tax dollars. Now, ISA completely pushes back on that. He does admit, yes, a company that he owns did get a PPP loan for $150,000. But no, none of that money was ever given to his campaign. Uh, he says he didn't cut in the line or, or, or jump, of any, jump ahead of anybody to get this money. Um, and, and I would say, Maureen, to, something to keep in mind is that Isis says this too. He's given millions of dollars to his campaigns. Um, and he sort of says, you know, for Amar to pick out one transaction where, yes, he did give $150,000 to his campaign um, and one a business he, he owned also happened to take a $150,000 PPP loan is just disingenuous. And I think the point that Amar is making is, look, you are worth a lot of money. You did not need the PPP loan in general. So really, Maureen, if you really sort of read between the lines here, there is some truth here. So I said did take a $150,000 PPP loan, but the business that he owned, the company that he owned, they didn't get a PPP loan. And then that, that company did not transfer money directly to his campaign. ISA personally has given millions of dollars to his campaign. Uh, he just says it's very unfair for Amar to sort of uh, try to make this correlation when there is not one that exists. I've been speaking with KPBS reporter Matt Hoffman. And Matt, thank you. Thank you. To see debates between Amar Kampanajar and Daryl Issa, tune into KUSI at 9.30 tonight and NBC7 Saturday at 6 p.m. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. 
We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. Sewage is being tested in San Diego and other places as a way to understand how widespread COVID-19 infections are in the region. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says that raises a question about whether the presence of the virus in sewage is a public health risk. UC San Diego has already used the waste stream to identify local COVID-19 outbreaks. Each dorm has its own sewage system. Kim Prather is an atmospheric chemist at the school who's working with school officials to develop early COVID warning systems. Sampling air is one way. Sampling sewage for the virus is another. Since we can't test everybody all the time, that's a way that we'll, we'll do that very frequently. And so if it starts to go up in the sewage of a particular dorm, then we can figure out how to test and isolate the students in that dorm. The sewage testing has already led to two people who were coronavirus positive but not showing symptoms. The virus was found in sewage coming from several campus buildings. The same receptors that take it to the lung take the gastrointestinal tract, they're there as well. So the virus grows uh, in the GI tract and um, is shed into the stool. Richard Schooley is a distinguished professor of medicine at UCSD. He says researchers look for RNA, parts of the virus that persist in the waste stream. The presence of that genetic material can serve as an early warning beacon of an infectious outbreak. Analysts are not looking for active viruses capable of infecting another host, and it's not clear that they would find them. To be infectious, the virus has to be present as a full viral particle, surrounded by a very uh, delicate, basically, bubble of detergent. And so the kinds of things that get done at sewage treatment plants are just the kinds of things this virus doesn't like. But in untreated sewage, the virus could potentially survive. Schooley says high concentrations of airborne particles of the SARS COVID virus got into a Hong Kong apartment complex back in 2003. It came from a pool of sewage stored beneath the building. The particle spread through plumbing in this well-documented case and then to residents. This was not treated sewage water. There, uh, the, uh, it was... The apartment complex was called the Amoy Garden Complex, and uh, the best evidence we have is that the virus aerosolized from this untreated sewage pool uh, and, and air currents was able to spread through the air. But the virus is unlikely to survive in the San Diego waste stream. They haven't adapted very well um, to survive outside of the host. However, some may possibly get through that are still viable, meaning contagious. Shauna Lawrence is the city of San Diego's director of public utilities. She says wastewater moves through the city systems to a treatment plant where a lot of things happen that the virus doesn't like. All of our processes, what we're very careful of is to make sure it's not just one layer, that there's multiple layers of treatment. So if for any bizarre reason something happened in one of them, there's still additional treatment plant processes that will take care of it. Lawrence says recycling wastewater involves even more treatment, and when the city's pure water project is up and running, wastewater will be turned into distilled pathogen-free water. But not all wastewater gets treated before it enters the environment. San Diego has endured billions of gallons of sewage-tainted cross-border flows since COVID-19 hit the region in spring. 
And UC San Diego's Richard Schooley says there is reason for concern. There's potentially public health risk for a lot of pathogens in untreated sewage water, whether it's the Tijuana River or from the Mississippi River. Schooley says sunlight and dilution can go a long way toward reducing the risk of a virus like COVID-19, but he says treating the wastewater is the best step to protecting public safety. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. One of KPBS Radio's most popular podcasts is stepping up this season with a new name and a slightly new approach to storytelling. Our Only Here podcast focused on San Diego's unique position as a border community and how that shapes our stories and our culture. Now, Only Here is getting a new name, Port of Entry and its new season of 14 episodes has just started. Joining me is Port of Entry host, Alan Lilienthal. And Alan, welcome to the show. Hey, thank you for having me. Why change the name of the podcast from Only Here to Port of Entry? Well, there's a few layers to this answer. For one, we were part of a podcast accelerator program with PRX in Boston. And we learned so many things from writing to hosting to sound design. Just We picked up so many skills that we wanted to kind of start fresh and put all these things we learned to, to, to really show people that this is really a new just a new way of doing this podcast. That's one. For the second, from the beginning, we didn't feel like Only Here was necessarily the most emblematic of what this show is as a name. I think Only Here can be a show about anything, really. And everywhere, no matter where you're from, there's something that only happens there, right? So we wanted something that really that really captures that border spirit that we put into the podcast. And anyone who lives crossing the border knows what the port of entry is like you it's a part of your daily reality and for people who don't cross the border the port of entry kind of represents a portal into into a new world that you might not be so familiar with right when you cross the border through the port of entry you're entering a new land and and with the storytelling that we do in this show we kind of want to we are we see ourselves as kind of a guide into into stories and people's personal story people's lives that maybe you wouldn't have been familiar with before um so we really just wanted to to let our the audience that has been with us since only here know that this is really a new show and we're putting a we're putting a lot of love into it so what other changes have you made to port of entry what's different well for one we are really embracing more spanish it's still very much an english podcast but Whereas before, maybe we, we went out of our way to translate all the Spanish. We realized that being a border show, Spanglish is really the mother tongue of a lot of people here, including me and a lot of our listeners. So we, we wanted to really embrace what this region is made of, which is more Spanish. That's one. Second, Emily as a sound designer, myself as a host, and Kinsey as a writer, producer, we've gotten, we've just really picked up a lot of new skills through this accelerator and you'll be able to hear that in the way these episodes are crafted um is just a new level for us and we're really proud of it and another thing is we're really the episodes before were kind of standalone each episode was its own story whereas now we're really focused on creating thematic arcs with our seasons, with our with a, with a show. So when we're releasing episodes, they'll belong to a kind of a cluster that, that are categorized by, by themes so that we can kind of have some more consistency to the stories we're telling. Now, last year, the podcast 
had some very successful episodes, one about the border church in particular, I remember. Were you surprised at the popularity of this podcast? <laughs> to be completely honest, I don't, I try not to think about any of that too much from the music I make to this podcast. Um, I, I want to focus on the process of making it and, and really make the best thing possible and not necessarily worry about how popular or unpopular it is, but it's very nice and it's very humbling to know that it resonates with people and to see it, to see it just really touch, move people. Uh, so that's, that's been a beautiful thing. Um, I guess I wasn't surprised because I think there is a hunger to, to demystify the border and to hear border stories that are more authentic and real. We're so inundated with, with these kind of broad strokes and black and white headlines about what the border is that both from people who are locals and people who are not from here, we want to really be able to touch it and understand it from a personal perspective. Um, so I think in a time when the border is being so spoken about in national media, I, I think we just want something real. So no, I'm not surprised. I think, I think it's the perfect time for something like this. You brought an excerpt from the new Port of Entry season. Can you tell us about it? Set it up for us. Yeah, absolutely. We're right now. Our first season is part of of a series on politics and race, and we wanted to do a story on how the Black Lives Matter movement is actually crossing the border. Um, obviously, it's been gaining a ton of momentum around the world, but in Tijuana, there it create it's an interesting intersection because in Tijuana, there's a lot of socio-political forces at work within the Black Lives Matter movement. It's an intersection of migrant rights and black rights. Uh, and that's been a fascinating thing to both learn about and see, see it flourish. So with this first clip, you're going to meet some of the people who are responsible for birthing the Black Lives Matter movement in Tijuana. Someone like John Denis Louis, who is a Haitian migrant who now calls Tijuana home. And you also hear from Jay, who's a migrant from Cameroon and she really has a, just a heartbreaking story, and they've put, they've just put their weight behind this movement because they really believe in it, and it's it's been fascinating for me to to learn about, and it's an honor to be able to tell their stories and to give them a platform to tell their own stories. Good afternoon, I am Dennis. I'm from Haiti. I was born in Haiti. The growth of my family is going up in Haiti. When I talked to Jean Denis Louis, he was sitting on his bed in his apartment in Tijuana. His 10-month-old baby girl was busy climbing all over him as we spoke. In Haiti, Denis made life as a traditional dance instructor and performer, and his wife ran a restaurant in the city. Life was hard, but okay. But sustaining their okay life eventually got too hard. Haiti was still reeling from the magnitude 7.0 earthquake that struck in 2010. So when Hurricane Matthew hit in 2016... It was just totally devastating. Denise and thousands of other Haitians packed their bags and headed first to Brazil, then to the U.S. border. Some of the Haitians' journeys were difficult and dangerous and involved long, treacherous hikes through jungles without clean drinking water. But Denise was lucky to have enough money to fly directly from Haiti to Tijuana. He planned to declare asylum in the U.S., but when he got to the border, everyone he talked to told him he'd be detained and deported if he tried. I choose Mexico because I don't, I don't want 
prison. I'm staying here. Dennis instead got a permit that allowed him to work and live in Mexico. His wife came a few years later, and when they had a baby, all three of them got permanent residency here. Denis says Tijuana has been mostly good to him, but he has had his share of struggles. At one of his first jobs in the city, his boss refused to pay him his full salary, knowing full well he'd have a hard time as a migrant taking any legal recourse against him. And recently, his classmates at a local university cut him out of a group project and he ended up not getting the credit he deserved. He says he's often made aware of his status as a second-class citizen in Mexico through lots of microaggressions that add up over time. Then he says racism and discrimination are in Tijuana and everywhere in Mexico. But the worst part, he says, is that most Mexicans just won't admit it. Mexico no quiere enfrentar su racismo. Aquí en México hay un racismo más peligroso que todo el mundo. Porque son algo escondidas, son algo que está abajo de la mesa. Es así. What's his name? George Floyd! What's his name? George Floyd! What's his name? George When migrants and activists in Tijuana saw the Black Lives Matter movement happening in San Diego and other cities across the globe, they got inspired to bring the movement to the border. Activists in Tijuana actually worked with Black Lives Matter leaders in San Diego to make it happen. One of the goals was to bring attention to the Haitian migrant who died in police custody in January. Police still haven't even released the man's name. It's risky for migrants to get out on the streets and protest for their rights, especially in the middle of a global pandemic, not to mention the fact that many of them don't have legal status and are at risk of deportation by Mexican immigration officials. But they were willing to take that risk. And at noon on Saturday, June 14th, Denise, Jay, and about 50 other people showed up at El Chaparral, a plaza near the San Isidro port of entry where migrants go to sign up for asylum. From there, they marched to Plaza Santa Cecilia, the same plaza where the Haitian migrant died in police custody earlier this year. At the protest, Jay chanted and danced and then grabbed a microphone hooked up to a large speaker. She wanted to share her story because, like Denny's, she says not enough people are talking about Mexico's racism problem. I do it. I'm there. Yes, of course. I do it. I, I, I will have to organize the, the, the first protest to Black Lives Matters here in Tijuana. They come out the speech. I, yes, I make my speech that day, yes. I protest because my people suffer too much. Long time, long, long time. We want to stop it, okay? We, we want to say enough is enough.
you've suffered very much in your life and you've been through so much what what gives you strength what give what keeps you going my children love of my children just like that. love of my children yo participé sin pulsen en esta organización en estas cositas porque ya sabes por qué por ella just like jay then he says he was willing to get out on the streets in the middle of a pandemic not for himself but for his kid he says he wants to start the work now to help make a better world for her yo tengo 35 años yo no no sirve para nada pero la persona que que va necesita una libertad para vivir para caminar para caminar en toda parte del mundo es ella No es un trabajo que va que vamos a tener resultado hoy un día. Es un trabajo tenemos que hacer paso a paso, paso a paso, paso a paso, ¿no? Es así. Mi experiencia es que es que la, lo demás, las personas que están haciendo racismo cambien y se respetan. Nada más. Siempre, eso, siempre. That's an excerpt from the new season of the KPBS podcast, Port of Entry. I've been speaking with host Alan Lilienthal. The podcast is produced by Kinsey Moreland. The director of sound design is Emily Jankowski. You can subscribe to the series now by visiting portofentrypod.org or just search Port of Entry in your favorite podcast app. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, We've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh. Live opera is back but with a twist. San Diego Opera will be staging La Boheme in the parking lot of the Pechenga Arena San Diego next week. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando speaks with the opera's director, Katura Stickan, about how COVID and an outdoor venue are changing the production. Katura, so this opera season is going to be very strange because of COVID. And San Diego Opera has come up with a means of putting on a production this year, which is going to be outdoors. So talk about the particular challenges of this. The outdoor challenge, uh, which I know is very new for San Diego Opera, is not particularly new for me as a director. So I wasn't worried about that as much. I just 
my checklist had to change in terms of what I was asking. But the, the, the bigger challenges come with, with the, the, the onstage COVID protocol more. One of the biggest ones being that each singer needs 120 square feet of their own wherever they are on stage, meaning that they cannot be any closer than 15 feet from the person that they are singing towards and no closer than four feet on either side. That challenge <laughs> changed the entire way that I, that I had to think about the piece that I was putting together. So that, that's actually been the bigger one. There's other things in terms of social distancing between me and my assistant and between me and the lighting designer, whereas in a lot of times in tech rehearsals, I'll be able to come up and whisper in somebody's ear a note or something that we can change on the fly. We just aren't gonna have that ability. And we'll be on walkie talkies, but that sort of close contact that is so integral to putting a piece together quickly is just not something that's going to be available to us. And so we've had to really rethink how we communicate with each other in this tight schedule that we have. You mentioned you've worked in outdoor spaces before, but is this the first drive-in opera you've done? It is the first drive-in opera, yes. You know, I know there have been a couple of other companies around the world right now who've been experimenting a little bit with drive-in opera. And, and uh, it feels really exciting to be one of those maybe three companies, you know, and I, I just think there's something so fascinating about about the the idea that A, we can do live performance, which is something that so many of us in the business were just afraid was going to take so long to get back. But also just, I think every time you watch a show from a different perspective, it changes the way you see the show. And I, what I'm really excited about is just what the storytelling feels like in this type of venue. Yeah, it's a first. It's an absolute first for me and for all of us on stage and for all of us backstage too. And with these new COVID restrictions in terms of how close people can be, this particular opera would seem to be a challenge because there are a lot of moving parts and, and people on stage all the time. So how did you go about tackling that? Well, there's a couple of things. One is we needed to get the opera down so that it, to a, an amount of time that could be done in one sitting so that people weren't trying to deal with intermission and that there weren't as many people who were needing to use bathroom facilities, for, for instance. So we've gotten it down to, uh, I believe right now, we think it's at 86 minutes. Uh, we'll, we'll get into music rehearsals and we'll know a little more about that. But 86 minutes means that we had to cut the chorus and the chorus going away was sad, but necessary both from a spacing point of view. We do not have space for 120 square feet for every chorus member. It's just, that's, it's just impossible. But also just, it's the easiest way to get the timing down to a point where we're simply looking at the experiential moments of these characters all put together. And, and I think actually, as much as I miss the chorus sequences, I miss the act two craze that happens at the beginning. There's something about really honing in on these intimate moments between characters that I think is gonna allow both us as performers and the creative team and the audience to take a deeper look at each of these people uh, as, the, as their story is told. So that's been sort of an exciting silver lining in, in putting this piece together the way we've had to do it. Yeah, I was going to ask if having the combination of having to rethink it in terms of how you produce it and stage it, but also, you know, rethinking it from the point of view that you've been in quarantine, we have a pandemic, there's all this stuff going on. I'm wondering if you found new layers or different themes that popped for you more this time. 
Yeah, definitely. I, you know, the, the storytelling itself has changed. The story is the same, but this is a piece that is about loss and it is about missing somebody or just the possibility of missing somebody. And, and I found it so poetic that we, as performers, the performers all have to be in these little pods. They have to be 120 square feet of space around them. They're protected from each other. They can't get anywhere near each other. And I feel like we're all sort of like that right now. We, we're all unable to touch our loved ones, unable to hug each other, unable to get close. And so there is a mirroring that's happening. And I've actually taken the story in that direction. I, uh, I decided in thinking about it that, that instead of trying to pretend like we're doing it normally. La Boheme was originally a, a series of short stories written by a man named Henri Merger, and he he actually wrote him, it's a lot, there's a lot of autobiography in it, and he wrote himself as, as Rodolphe, uh, who is Rodolfo, of course, in, in the opera. So I actually have Rodolfo, we're setting it in his study, 10 years after the death of Mimi, he's writing these stories, and because of the nature of memory, which I, I love. I love this moment that you can dive so deeply into a memory and hear everything and smell things and feel things, but you can't actually touch what happened. It's, it, it doesn't exist anymore. And so I'm allowing these people who came through his life to appear and disappear as the memories, as fragments, as the memories sort of course through him but he's in his study reliving this and and Mimi because she is conceivably the only one who has passed away Mimi is both a memory and also a ghost and so she can exist in real time in his space it became this whole give and take about how do we deal with memories that are so deep and so hard to process on on a certain level when we think about the death of someone that we love very much that there's a certain amount of moving through and letting go that has to happen and sometimes we need permission from our the ghosts of our past and from our memories to to move forward and i feel like when i started reading the text that so much of it is about working through this trauma and guilt that he feels for how he he was dealing with mimi at the time and not being able to really truly accept her illness and i just thought what if mimi could be there and could tell him you know it's okay and and allow him to release her and so we're playing with a whole different idea of this storytelling it's the same story we will see the same wild histrionics the same characters but from being conjured from a man who is looking back on a time that was both joyous and troubling for him uh, in his past all right. Well, I want to thank you very much. And I am looking forward to this drive-in version of La Boheme. <laughs> yeah, me too. Thank you so much. It's great to talk to you. That was Beth Accomando speaking with La Boheme director Katura Stiken. San Diego Opera's drive-in production of La Boheme starts October 24th.
Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year, we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com.